Welcome to The Common Share, a podcast about cooperative businesses. I'm Asa Marshall with Cooperatives First, an organization that promotes cooperative business development in rural and Indigenous communities across Western Canada. For more information on us and what we do, visit cooperativesfirst.com. If you need resources for starting your own co-op, check out the co-op creator at coopcreator.com. This is a great resource site that has everything you need to get a co-op up and running. On the show today, we're pleased to welcome Kristen Whitman. Kristen is a lawyer at the law firm Taylor McCaffrey in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Her specialty is corporate and commercial law, and she has developed a particular interest in complex, unique cooperatives. She's worked with co-ops to establish their structure, write their bylaws, obtain financing, create business plans, and more. She gives legal advice to cooperatives in a variety of industries, from agriculture to housing, insurance, retail, and oil and gas. Kristen also currently sits on the board of directors of Red River Co-op, a retail co-op that serves over 300,000 members in and around Winnipeg. We had a great conversation about her experience working with co-ops and some of the more interesting uses of the model that she's seen. Before we start, I want to add that this interview was recorded on Zoom, and there is some background noise in parts. We've tried to keep it to a minimum, so it shouldn't be too distracting. So first, Kristen told us why she became interested in co-ops in the first place, and the kind of work she does with cooperatives. Ultimately, I think I, I recognized a matching of value systems. Uh, uh, my own personal values with uh, what I could see could be achieved out of a cooperative model. That was part of it. Part of it was also just the intellectual challenge of having to learn something all on my own. We're not taught about co-ops in law school, or we weren't when I was going through law school. No one seemed to really know anything about them. And when I dug in a little deeper, it became clear to me that there were very few lawyers who really knew the model in detail. And so I decided to set that as a challenge for myself to see if I could figure out the model in detail. Um, I, but first and foremost, I think the values, when I read about these cooperative principles, I thought, well, this is interesting. I, I like this. How, how does this work? And, and how does it work in a, in a business environment? You know, or, or is this just like charity? And of course, I discovered that it isn't. So I, I started off with this new generation co-op. And what one of the things they were doing, this they'd come to, to seek legal advice because they were doing a fairly, it was going to be an onerous project. They needed to raise a lot of money. And so as a consequence, I, I became known as the person who could help if you were looking to raise capital. Uh, so a lot of what I do is assistance with those kind of fundraising activities uh, because there isn't just the cooperative side of things to deal with, but then there's also the securities law that you need to negotiate through. I sort of have ended up specializing in the complicated or the complex cooperative model. So multi-stakeholder co-ops, helping them figure out how to set up their articles because they're a little bit more complex than the standard worker co-op or a standard not-for-profit housing co-op has certain elements that are relatively straightforward. I don't tend to do much of that work. What I do is where there are complex structures in mind where there's a problem, and we need to find a solution because of the way it was originally set up or because of something that has happened. Uh, and then I also just help with regular legal work. So if there, there's a contract they want to negotiate, I, I can look at that for them too. Like so much of how 
how a legal career is developed, I, I've sort of stumbled into um, helping with some changes to the Co-op Act that came about between 2007 and, two, and 2011, because somebody knew me and said she'd be good to sit on this steering committee, so go ask her. And I said, well, okay, that sounds good. And the thing that we were attempting to achieve principally was a model that could give greater flexibility to cooperatives. And that's where the multi-stakeholder concept came in. That being said, more recently, I helped, in fact, wrote a paper for the Manitoba Cooperatives Association on specifically one barrier uh, for co-ops, and that is the raising capital. Because as we all know, one member, one vote, you don't get more of a say if you put more money into the cooperative. So in one sense, there's a disincentive to put your capital into a co-op. Uh, and the model doesn't look to value your equity. That's not the point of the model. The model is to value your participation in the co-op. And so how do you then raise money from your members if that's not something that, that is valued in the model as a whole. So the legislation has changed and it does allow for the creation of investment shares and uh, it does allow for people to receive dividends uh, on their investment. And all of that uh, can encourage uh, or can, can, yeah, well, encourage people to be more willing to invest in cooperatives, to put their money into the co cooperative. But there are still a lot of barriers relating to raising funds. And so that's something that we looked at in detail and it's now in the hands of the more appropriate people to, to do that than I, but I provided my thoughts and did a fairly comprehensive review of different jurisdictions uh, to try to figure out what we could do about those barriers. We asked Kristen if there are some things other provinces could learn from the work that she's done in Manitoba and what impact she's seen from the work that she does, for example, with multi-stakeholder cooperatives. Well, that's a tricky question, uh, it, partly because of the way the law works in Canada. Um, there is a federal jurisdiction for cooperatives. You can incorporate a cooperative federally, but most people don't because most people operate in a province. And if you incorporate federally, you also have to go through steps to get registered in that province where you actually engage in business. You can't sort of engage globally in Canada in business. It just doesn't our system doesn't work that way because we have a provincial federal dichotomy. So are there things that we could learn? I think so. My sense is that there are provinces that have a little greater flexibility for the types of cooperatives or the industries that cooperatives can be used in. But by the same token, I think there's also danger in trying to expand the model to be uh, suitable for all purposes and for all persons because then you risk diluting the the values that resulted in the cooperative model to begin with certainly with respect to the multi-stakeholders uh, cooperatives so of course I'm not sure uh, how many jurisdictions have this, but just as a very basic brief overview, uh, you can have more than one category of membership in the same cooperative. Uh, so if you have a producer or consumer co-op, uh, you can have that married to a worker cooperative. Uh, so long as the people in one group 
do not become members in the other group at the same time. You have to, you have to pick which group you want to be in. But after that, you can support each other uh, and have more than one benefit to participation in that cooperative. And I have seen a fairly impressive take up of that model since it was created in the early 2010s. Apart from that, the one other thing that I did see happen and that I'm, I was pleased to see how the end result, given the way it happened, is just a little bit anecdotal, but I, was, I went in to meet with some bureaucrats to talk about the tax credit uh, that uh, the Manitoba government had made available. And as we were going through the process of the paperwork, I pointed out to them that the way they had defined the shares that could qualify, they had inadvertently excluded cooperatives because they said that the shares had to be non-par value and cooperatives have par value shares. Uh, so they, the initial reaction was to shut down that program in respect of cooperatives. So even though a couple of cooperatives had qualified, it was because nobody had noticed. <laughs> that there was a difference in the way the shares uh, worked. And when, a, when I pointed it out, of course, then they were stuck. They knew about it, so they couldn't prove any more. And initially, I was worried about some backlash that, you know, I'd, I'd shut this door that no one had noticed before until the lawyer got in there and pointed out the detail. But in fact, what the government did, much to my... Uh, approval uh, was uh, took it back, looked at it, changed the legislation, revised the definition, and it specifically included cooperative shares as shares that qualify for the CED tax credit, which is terrific, of course. That removes a barrier uh, for incentivizing people to invest. So I was pleased with that. As Kristen mentioned, she likes working with unique co-ops with somewhat complex structures. She talked about some of the more interesting cooperatives that she's worked with in her career. Kristen's experience shows how adaptable the co-op structure can be. In fact, she even helped invent a new kind of cooperative. So everybody knows about retail co-ops. Everybody knows about not-for-profit housing co-ops. Uh, I've, I've had a few instances, like I said, I, I tend to focus on the, the quirky or the tricky or the harder to figure out uh, projects. And so I can think of three. They all happen to relate to housing, but that I think is just coincidence. Um, one was a group of uh, very engaged uh, young folks who were all tenants of a building and a number of them were in cooperatives and they were looking around and saying, why can't we have like a housing co-op for business, for commercial, for commercial property? And they came to me and I said, well, I don't think that there's any reason why you can't. <laughs> so let's give it a try. And we did. They, uh, their landlord had come to them and said that he no longer wanted to own the building. So they got themselves together, almost like a federation, because there, it's a bunch of different co-ops, principally, who are the members of this co-op. But we formed a co-op that bought the land and is now the landlord to a bunch of tenants, most of whom are members. But not all. There are some non-member tenants. But it's a commercial enterprise. It's it's a, it's a lovely building just a couple blocks away from me. Uh, so that was one example. Uh, another example was a, a again a, a group who uh, came forward and said, you know, we've we've been living on this really terrific in this trailer park for many many years, and 
we love it here. There's a really great campground next door, but the owners want to retire and they're moving away and we don't want this property to be sold to a developing company that is just going to come in and kick us out and, you know, develop new housing or something. So we went and looked at it and we just, you know, it, it, the problem was is that a housing co-op must provide substantially all of its um, services must be housing for its members. And a big part of the income of this commercial arrangement was the campground. They needed that campground to support what they wanted to do. So we invented a new co-op called a recreational co-op and they became members of that and we bought the business from the owners. That was a share purchase transaction. So the owners sold the shares of a company that they owned and we took that company and we did something that to my knowledge had never been done before. And it, it was one of those things where you say, has this never been done before because it can't be done or because nobody's ever done it? Turns out it's because nobody's ever done it. And that was we amalgamated this wholly owned corporation into the co-op so that the whole thing became one enterprise. And the third thing that I did uh, was I helped a, a small group of ladies form a, a housing co-op. This was a group that where I told you they weren't familiar with the co-op model. They came to see me and they said, we're a group of older women who have decided we don't want to each live on our own in our own houses. We want to live in one house together. We want to share the costs and we want to share in the increase in value of the property. And I said, okay, well, if you want to do that, you're probably best off using a co-op, but it'll have to be a for-profit housing co-op. And you're going to have to deal with the fact that the co-op's never going to sell the land. So how do you get the value out of that land when you cease to be a member? And we eventually came up with a fairly complicated <laughs> plan, but it, it should work for them uh, because they're very small. There's, uh, I think they can have up to seven members. It's a, it's a house in Winnipeg and they each have their own suite and they share duties and they believe in the cooperative principles. And that was the interesting part for me was that I said, you know, I think what you want is a co-op. And they said, well, what's a co-op? I thought that was just like, you know, the gas station up the street, right? So I explained, well, a co-op has these values that, and it, it works this way. It's one member, one vote. And they said, well, that's exactly what we want. And off we were. They, they all wanted to be owners of one house. So how do you do that? Because you can't stratify a residential house. <laughs> it's, it's one property. It doesn't have, you can't put seven titles onto it. And so really the only way to, to do it is to have an ownership interest in the thing that owns it. And a corporation treats those who put in more money differently than those who don't have as much money. And that was of real concern to them because they wanted to make this work equally for everybody, regardless of how much money each person invested. They wanted everybody to invest, but if there were people who couldn't or couldn't right away or had to wait until their house sold before they could have some proceeds to invest in this, they wanted to still have everybody have the same say at the table, literally at the dining table, it, you know, when they sat down to, to eat dinner, they wanted everybody to have the same responsibility for cooking meals and cleaning up and 
participating in decision making. And the only way, I mean, it can be done with a corporation, but what I found over time is that if, if you pick the right structure at the outset, the life of that entity is going to be much easier than if you pick a structure that doesn't quite fit. It's sort of like trying to use a tool that isn't quite the right tool to, you know, it's like a, a fork to try to eat soup. You know, it's, it, it'll kind of make it happen, but it's going to be a fight the whole way through. Given the work she's done with co-ops, we ask if there are any other legal barriers for co-op startups that she could think of. Uh, no, I don't think that there are. I think, in fact, what we're going to see, my prediction, uh, is that we are going to see more and more corporate um, businesses adopting more and more of the cooperative model because consumers are becoming more and more aware and are more interested in seeing those values built into the businesses that they've come to patronize. That being said, I do think that we still have a long way to go to get the co-op model to, to educate the public on what it means to be a member of a co-op and how that is fundamentally different from being um, a customer of a corporation that has adopted a few of the co-op values. Not the same thing. There's still a shareholder out there somewhere else who's making money when I go and buy my boots. And we have, there, there is not a lot of education out there on the co-op model and I'd like to see that change. I, I, have, uh, I have hope for the future, but there's a lot of work ahead. Kristen talked about what it looks like when other types of business adopt the practices of cooperatives. Well, Costco is an interesting example of it. So I, I think corporations and those that, that sit in behind the corporation, the directors of corporations, are recognizing that the consumer is becoming more interested in the ethics of business. So I was at a conference just the other day and someone identified uh, for us the, uh, the Airbnb model. And they've been having a fair bit of uh, bad press uh, on their ethics and on what they're really doing to affordable housing in the end by uh, facilitating people who have enough money can buy a second, third, fourth uh, housing units and then just rent them out and make money uh, on the backs of those who really, you know, are, are the ones in need of affordable housing. Uh, and so what Airbnb has done practically is they've said, okay, well, let's um, put more effort into listening to, hearing from our stakeholders. And let's recognize that our stakeholders do not just include our shareholders. It's not just the people who are making money, but it's all the people that we touch and affect. Our customers, uh, the developers who are building these buildings, the regulators who are making the laws around how they can be rented out. And let's see if we can include them all in a discussion so that we can share our success. Now, the, the difficulty that I have with that is that it, it sounds good, but when you really drill into it, the success ultimately still is the flow of funds back, profits back to the shareholders. 
So if they're talking about reducing that flow and redirecting it to affordable housing campaigns, that's a sharing of success that maybe has some meat on the bones. If they're doing it as window dressing to make them look like they're a more ethical company, hopefully over time with education, people will come to understand that that's not really achieving those co-op values. And there are businesses out there that do achieve those values and have the meat on the bones. Kristen gave some final thoughts for listeners. If you're interested in co-ops, dive in. I guess I would say that, um, I mean, presumably if somebody's listening to this podcast, they've already discovered an interest in co-ops. Uh, and so what I would say to them is dive into it. Don't think that just by learning something on the surface that you've got what you need. Uh, because it, being a member of a co-op carries a lot of responsibility. It's, it's, the, it's the little model of our bigger democracy. You have to vote. You have to participate. If you don't, it doesn't work. That's what I would have to say. Thank you for joining us. To give us your thoughts on anything we discussed in this episode, you can find us on Facebook or on Twitter as at coops underscore first. We'll be back in a few weeks with another episode of The Common Share.